The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. The EU leaders were meeting in Brussels. Uh, Also, of course, the Parliament itself met. And um, Nigel Farage addressed the Parliament this morning. And uh, this is how it all ended. I know that virtually none of you have ever done a proper job in your lives or worked in business or indeed ever created a job. But listen, if we were to move to a position where tariffs were reintroduced on products like motor cars, then hundreds of thousands of German workers would risk losing their jobs. Well, um, apparently his speech wasn't very popular, but Jean-Claude Juncker, he's the European Commission president from, I think, Luxembourg, um, he he had a bit of a quip for the UKIP leader. Here's uh, Jean-Claude. And to some extent, I'm really surprised that you are here. You are fighting for the exit. The British people voted in favour of the exit. Why are you here? And, of course, the Scottish National Party, um, or was Scotland voting for it to stay in Europe? There, there uh, Alan Smith, he had uh, a speech which went down rather well. Please remember this. Scotland did not let you down. Please, I beg you, do not let Scotland down now. Well, my next guest was in the thick of it all. It's independent MEP Marion Harkin. Uh, Marion, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. What was it like? Well, Alan Smith was the only one who got a standing ovation. People stood up, you know, when he spoke. Look, it was a bit fractious at times, but in general, a lot of cool heads, people calling to stand back and to, you know, to deal with this in a reasonable way. But of course... Farage, in many ways, is, is the bête noire. He, he says things to antagonise people. You heard what he said, you know, most of you in this parliament have never done a proper day's work or had a job in your lives, that kind of thing. He says that kind of thing to antagonise people. But I suppose what struck me most about Farage's speech was his, his last paragraph, when he said that, uh, why don't we be grown-up, pragmatic, sensible, realistic, and let's cut a deal between us a sensible tariff-free deal, etc. Now, that's never, never land because there is no way that the UK can have a tariff-free deal unless they do what Norway does, unless they accept free movement, unless they pay into the European budget, and unless they abide by the rules. And very clearly, Nigel Farage wants to do none of those things, and the, the, the British people voted uh, not to be part of the club and not to abide by the rules, etc. So at one level, what he's doing, George, is he's, he's speaking, obviously, to, to his supporters, and he's saying, look, I'm in the parliament, and I'm telling them 
we've got to be growing up about this and let, look, let's just get on here and give us a tariff-free deal. But then why would anybody be in the European Union if they could have a tariff-free deal and not pay in, not abide by sure. the rules, etc.? No, Marianne Harkin, um, without getting bogged down in, in so much detail, because the, the fact of the matter is we don't know necessarily where this is going, but like you were there, you heard speeches and you heard reaction of your fellow MPs to speeches. People are, there must be a reasonable percentage, and I wonder how big of of, of MEPs who just want Britain out, in other words, what, what people are calling a scorched earth policy. What kind of percentage do you think that might be? It's hard to judge, George, but what I would say is, my best opinion on this is, uh, that the leaders of the groups in general will, will keep a lid on most of it. And I think after a week or two, you know, once the, whatever emotion it is, subsides, that people then will look to the reality, the real politic, and, and see where we go from there. It was interesting, though, this morning when we were walking in um, to the Parliament, um, they, there was uh, somebody standing and cameras all around, a big scrum. You couldn't see who it was. And just as I went by, who was it? Marine Le Pen. So that shows, you know, the impact of Brexit Everybody wanted to hear what she had to say. But I think there's something else that needs to be said as well. I think there'll be a number of MEPs, and I hope a substantial number, will be doing a bit of soul-searching as well. Because, you know, this vote came for many reasons. You, you can't name one or two. There's probably three or four big ones. But, but one of the reasons was that people feel distant from the EU. They feel they're not heard, etc. And while I don't want to overemphasize that, it still is, you know, a reality out there. Because today, for example, we had a group of Irish farmers over and we spoke to them this afternoon. Now, they are all uh, pro-EU, largely, anyway. But, you know, to some extent, they're re-echoing the sentiment that uh, Europe isn't delivering for them when it should. So I think there needs to be a bit of soul-searching as to what we do and how we do it, and also, George, what messages we give to people. All right. Now, Marion Harkin, MEP, is speaking to me from Brussels. Parliament met today discussing uh, Brexit. Um, when I was in London on Thursday and Friday broadcasting from the referendum vote, and um, then on Friday we were talking to different people, and somebody suggested that uh, Britain mightn't be the only one that the Netherlands, somebody suggested, is next, and then maybe Hungary. Would you get that sense of a, a domino effect? I think it's possible, um, because, as I said, the cameras were all around Le Pen today. She will be running for the presidency of France. If she were to be elected, I, I don't know what her chances are, but they're certainly not nothing, and, you know, she'd have some chance. I, I don't think... As of now, she'd be well ahead or anything, but she, she would be in there. If she were to be elected, she has said she would give the French a referendum. But I, I just wonder, and I'm not sure about this, given the, the fallout of what's happened, I mean, British politics has gone into meltdown. Jeremy Corbyn lost a, a, a confidence yeah. motion today by 172 to 40. The leader of uh, the government, the prime minister, is resigning. 
Scotland is talking about breaking away. Northern Ireland voted to stay, and we don't know what's going to happen there. Given the the fallout, and, and I mean, I'm not even talking about the drop in sterling and the uncertainty and all of that. A lot of countries, particularly small countries, might think again, you know, France is a big country and probably would say to itself, well, you know, we can survive economically outside the Union, just like the UK would say it. But actually, Juncker gave a very interesting statistic today. And he said in the early 20th century, the Europeans made up about 20% of the people on the globe. By the end of this century, we'll be 4%. So despite the fact that we think we're a dominant world power, we are actually anything but. And even big economies like France and, and the UK are actually not that big, you know, by global comparison. So I think maybe the fallout from the UK referendum will give people pause so that at least they, they know what it means if they go. And uh, I, I think that may put some sort of a break on it. But I agree that there, there is a danger that certain countries might say, you know, this is an opportunity. I yeah. hope that doesn't happen. Um, but it, I, I can't rule it out totally, but I think it's actually less likely now than it was a week ago. All right, Marianne Harkin. Uh, finally, though, um, what can Irish MEPs do now uh, in this new situation. I mean, we're hearing, uh, you know, Andy Kenny go over there and beat the table and say we want a special deal or whatever. Okay, that's when the leaders meet and so on. But what do you think the role for MEPs is? Well, the first thing that needs to be said is that no agreement can go through without the consent of the European Parliament. So it doesn't matter what the leaders agree, the European Parliament must give its consent. So that gives us a certain amount of leverage. I'm not going to overestimate it, but it certainly does. And I think, George, that most of our colleagues, it was interesting today, there was a vote in the Parliament. I haven't got the the exact text of the amendment in front of me, but the, the sense of it was that given that Northern Ireland voted to stay, that there should be some mechanism uh, that they could remain within the EU. Now, that was suggested by um, Gui Ngl and Sinn Féin signed it. And uh, the vote in the Parliament, it, it fell, but there was 200 and something votes for it and 300 and something against it. I forget the exact numbers at this stage. But actually, it got more of a vote than I thought it would get. So what that showed to me was that people in the Parliament, or some people at least, understand the the huge difficulties that a border right in the middle of Ireland would cause and also the implications for the Irish economy, the fall in sterling, all of that sort of thing. So I I was heartened by that because, like, we, we have an uphill battle, but in my view, we have to look at some kind of, whether it's a, an interim arrangement or some kind of temporary arrangement, to give our economy an opportunity to adjust okay. to, to the new reality. So certainly all Irish MEPs will be pushing for that, and I hope that we will we will be listened to. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, the independent MEP, uh, Marianne Harkin. Um, now, uh, a listener says, I never heard Marianne Harkin interviewed before. I like her. Yeah, a very impressive performance. Now, 
Um, we are hearing in Britain of uh, an increase in hate crime, in racist attacks and racist graffiti and schoolchildren of foreign persuasion uh, being uh, insulted. And this is is very new for Britain in the sort of major way it now seems to be happening, but particularly happening also to long-established migrants from countries like Poland who have been there uh, for over 70 years. So uh, I asked the Polish ambassador to the United Kingdom himself, a former Polish ambassador to Ireland, Witold Sabkow, I asked him what his concern... You see, we we are worried because uh, we believe uh, in zero tolerance uh, when it comes to cases of this kind. It doesn't matter if they are aimed at the Polish community or any other community. Um, but we treat um, uh, this uh, phenomenon as uh, an element um, of a kind of uh, chaotic situation uh, after uh, the vote in the referendum uh, that not many people um, expected. And that is why um, uh, we think that these are isolated incidents. Uh, uh, we condemn them. We report them. We encourage the Polish community to report all of them. But we are in touch uh, with the British authorities, uh, first of all, uh, with the government, uh, but also the police uh, forces. You should remember that uh, Britain is one of the countries uh, that have uh, one of the strictest uh, laws when it comes to hate crime. So uh, we are in touch uh, with police forces, and, and they are very helpful. Also, local communities are very helpful. We are um, inundated with um, uh, messages of support and emails and letters and, and phones uh, from people who are worried, and they appreciate what uh, the Polish community has done here. Um, you mentioned the Second World War, but also now we have about 800,000 people who have come to Britain to work for more morning till night to contribute to the prosperity of this country. So they, they are not here for benefits. Um, they, they are here to work, and, and they are appreciated um, by a majority of the society. And so, so we think that uh, um, these acts uh, of, um, of hatred somehow will subside, and also we believe uh, uh, that uh, reason will prevail. Yes, Ambassador, but the Polish community, and we're not singling yes. out any one community, clearly, yes. but for people of a certain age, and, and also when one yes. thinks that apparently people of a certain age um, voted to leave the Union, but people re remember that it is not excessive to say that without the Polish Air Force, the Battle of That's Britain true. might not be won. So therefore, there is a debt in Britain Yes. to the Poles, cruelly treated uh, then when the, the celebration yes. march took place after the war, the Poles were left out because Churchill didn't want to offend Stalin. Um, so therefore the British people, and this is what saddens me particularly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. the British people, I'm not talking about the Irish people, the yes. British people owe a debt to the Poles. And I understand that this this new generation may not mm -hmm. understand that and treat all migrants differently. But having said that, yes. I still don't understand why, in a matter of days, a country that, to be fair, with some 
notable exceptions, has been welcoming uh, to migrants from across yes. Europe, has suddenly appeared to change. Well, there are probably a lot of uh, reasons for this, um, but uh, um, I think that, uh, first of all, our role in the Second World War is really appreciated here, and one of uh, um, uh, the uh, piece of evidence was uh, uh, the celebration that we had last year at St. Paul's Cathedral, where we had uh, the President of the Republic of Poland, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Prince Edward, and a lot of uh, personalities to, to underline the contribution of the Polish pilots. It's not just this, it's also the Polish mathematicians who helped uh, to break the code of the Enigma machine and lots of other things, um, not to mention Scotland when we had General Maciek and, and the Polish troops. And also Northern Ireland was protected by the Polish Air Force and the airspace. So, so lots of things um, of this kind that we constantly um, uh, remind our British friends of. But it's also, as I have mentioned, the contribution of the Poles who have come here um, after 2004, which is important for the prosperity of this country. I think it is appreciated, although there are some tensions, and, um, and uh, those incidents are a result of those tensions. And, and we deplore um, those incidents. Uh, we think that uh, they do not uh, somehow contribute to, um, to, 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 to mutual understanding and integration. I'm especially worried by what uh, happens from time to time at schools here, because we can speak about adults and we can usually reasonably talk to the parents of children at school, but some of the children um, unfortunately uh, express uh, their anger at their Polish uh, um, friends, pupils, uh, and they say, you can leave now, etc. And this is a little bit uh, this is this is not a little bit. This is very painful because children cannot defend themselves and they do not know why this is happening. So I hope these are isolated events and um, I hope uh, the schools uh, can somehow help in this. I'm in touch with the British authorities here, uh, with um, uh, with uh, Baroness Williams, uh, Lord Ahmed, and other people who are really very helpful and want to 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 support us and to help as much as they can to eradicate this kind of behavior. Well, of course, uh, Ambassador Sobkov, you're now ambassador to the United Kingdom. You were ambassador to the Irish Republic. Yes. It, there is a very substantial Polish community here, and I know many of most of us here in Ireland would be appalled if any forms of racial abuse or hatred uh, would yes. happen in this country to your fellow countrymen yes. and women. Uh, I wish you well, and I wish your Thank your, you. your people well in the United Kingdom and one can only hope that this will pass. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I have always uh, very warm memories from my, my stay in Ireland, which was also an extremely important period of the second Nice referendum and the enlargement when Ireland uh, uh, opened uh, its labor market uh, for people uh, from Poland, uh, for which we are very grateful. So thank you very much for your interest and all the best. To thank Ireland. you, Ambassador. Thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right, I'm joined now by Professor Alan Barrett of the SRI because a national economic dialogue has been taking place in Dublin Castle over the last couple of days. 
I'm deeply worried about the, the words national economic dialogue. Uh, please explain. OK, I guess it's, it's probably easiest to understand what the national economic dialogue is uh, if you think back to the old social partnership days. OK, so you remember pre-crisis, uh, people like the uh, the trade unions and the employers and the farmers and a range of other groups used to get together with the government and they used to have big, long discussions uh, and a lot of uh, things emerged from this. Like uh, benchmarking. That would be one. And uh, But a whole range of things. I mean, this began as a sort of a wage negotiation device, but it kind of morphed into a much broader policy uh, outfit. Anyway, crisis comes along. Uh, people started to sort of tire or be a bit suspicious of social partnership. So it was essentially suspended. Okay, so last year, uh, the government came around to the view that uh, it, it actually, it wasn't a bad thing at least to be having a conversation, okay, and to be hearing at least from the sort of people that, that used to gather in that room, to start hearing ag- again from them as to what were the priorities from the various uh, representative uh, groups. And it's quite broad, I should say, uh, the group that are, are there. Uh, what the government also decided to do, though, when they when they kicked this thing off last year, they decided to invite some members of the Oireachtas uh, to it. So it was sort of it got broadened because one of the criticisms of social partnership was that it was inherently anti-democratic. Uh, and the other thing they decided to do was have it in public. Okay, because again there was a sort of a view that under social partnership there was you know a group of people going into dark rooms or whatever like that or smoke filled rooms whatever they are and uh, making decisions that affected the nation. But it was all done in private. So uh, last year was the first national economic dialogue. Uh, this year has been the, the the second one and it is literally kind of what it says on All the right. tape. But there's hearing and listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the, the con- social partnership as I remember it, uh, the unions were in and they kind of flexed their muscles quite a bit and that's how things like and, and benchmarking came out of that as a way to get industrial peace and all that sort of stuff. We're facing a different situation now and by the time you actually went in Dublin Castle, the situation had just got massively different. Um, the, the, like, as an expert as you are in the ASRI and, and uh, an economist of note, wouldn't that be fair comment? I'll let you say it. I yeah, an economist of note. Um, the, where, today we heard from Cabinet they're going to increase the rent allowance, for instance. Right Now, forget about whether we agree or disagree what that will do to rents. But we wouldn't need it if we built houses. So you have a theory about building houses, haven't you? Uh, no, I don't think I have a theory about building houses now. No? You, I mean, you don't, as an economist, given that this, that we, we do, we seem incapable of building houses, which we did for generations. Surely you must, as an economist, you, you must have a plan for it. Well, I don't have a plan, but I mean, if you're asking the, the, the broader question, which is, is, is the only solution really to the housing issue, rather than sort of tinkering here and there with rent allowances and those sort of things, or rent certainty or all these other things? Yes, the absolute bottom line in all of this is that the only way we're going to move uh, on this particular issue is to build houses. Um, now, this is an issue that came up at the, the dialogue. And in fact, I think it was one of the, you know, very much one of the dominant themes and for a variety yeah. of reasons. I mean, there's people who are concerned about this from the social dimension of it. But even sort of more hard-headed economists are quite worried about this from an economic perspective uh, because you, you continually hear talk about competitiveness. OK, well, one of the things that employers are clearly noticing at the moment is that because it's so expensive to buy a house or to pay your rent, this is really putting pressure on wages now. So there is a competitiveness uh, dimension to this. I think it's Sorry, can I say, when you mm. say 
they put pressure on wages. People want wage in, people want wage increases because they can't pay the rent or the mortgage. I think that, that that's okay. part of it. And but there is a flip side, which is, uh, and we come across this in the SRI all the time. If you're hiring in in an international market, uh, people see the wage you're offering and they think that's quite good. But when they spend you know about two minutes on daft and they realise what rental prices are in Dublin, uh, they're much less enthusiastic. Well, about uh, sorry, here. you just put a thought in my head, and I don't want to break your thought, but it seems to be part of it. Morgan Stanley talking about maybe 3,000 people going to Frankfurt or Dublin. Forget whether they are or whether they're not. If there aren't any houses or apartments to house the 3,000 people, they're not actually going to come here. Isn't that no, right? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're, I know we're meandering here a little bit, but I know one of the, the sort of the, the possible upsides of Brexit, um, and it's presented as this possibility that there'll be a diversion of foreign direct investment from the UK to Ireland. There's a number of, di- I mean, at one level, yes, this is possible, but there's a number of uh, additional considerations. One is the simple notion that it's not like Ireland and the UK are the only two countries in the world competing for foreign direct investment and you take the Morgan Stanley uh, case, a lot of the big banks in the UK, if they're not in London, they're more likely to go to Paris or Frankfurt. The notion that it's just Ireland and the UK is a bit delusional. The other thing is that I, I think a lot of us feel that uh, if the UK starts seeing that they're losing foreign direct investment, they're probably going to react okay. by reducing the corporation tax. But the, but the third point, of course, is this housing issue yes. uh, that when people start talking about 10, 15, 20, 30,000 jobs, it does raise the simple question of where they're going to put all these people. And we know, for example, I think it was Google uh, might have been the people talking about this who were thinking of building their own apartment blocks uh, to just bypass the whole situation yeah. and just uh, accelerate it. But when you uh, were invited to speak at this National Economic Dialogue, well, just right? I was invited to chair. Chair, oh, very good. Mm. Even better. But when you were, <clears throat> it was the world was a different place. Mm. And and then you come in. Now, Brian Hayes, MEP, uh, Finnegan MEP, said on the programme this week, uh, yesterday, he said we're going to lose a ton of jobs and wage rates are going to come down. True or false? It, it, it's potentially true. Uh, I mean, this is very, very tricky. But to say, like, the world had changed completely, the world had certainly changed completely, but we had been thinking about the potential consequences of this for well over a year. Okay, so it's it's not like we were totally unprepared. I think the the, the point Brian was 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 making, and I think it's, it's certainly analysis we did at the SRI would confirm this. There's an immediate problem here that the UK is probably uh, going to take a severe economic hit, uh, and if nothing else happened, it just means when the British economy does uh, less well, the Irish economy does less well. So that's the first round effects. The second thing, of course, and this is where it goes, does get kind of complicated, uh, depending on the post-Brexit arrangement in regard to trade yeah, and the that, yeah. you know, that we really don't know how severe right. the effects are going to be. But do we not know this? And this is why the National Economic Dialogue presumably was very important. Presumably the Minister of Finance was there or Pascal Donoghue, who's yes, the, but they were both the there kind of the economic duration. wizard or whatever. Now, they had a whole bunch of plans when, when we last heard, say a month ago or whatever it was. Those plans, by definition, can't be the same, isn't that right? You can't say we're going to spend this. I don't want to use the word fiscal space, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like we had three billion. Surely now you have to think. Well, we mightn't have three billion. Yeah. No, I I think you're, were you you're raising right. those kind of? Oh yeah, no, they 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 did come up quite forcibly. And uh, let me put it like this: the, the, and I really I don't want to start boring people to tears with fiscal space. But but here's the simple part of it: the actual fiscal space that was viewed as being available in 2017 and 18. Okay, the first two years of the parliamentary cycle 
cycle was limited enough. It was on the order of about a billion a year. It's actually in the the latter three years that there was sort of projections that you would have had fiscal space of about three billion a year. Okay, so it's really further out. So the the immediate plans were somewhat modest anyway. Okay, and that given that the full extent of all the negatives of Brexit won't have happened over the next year or two, I think you know we don't need to worry about this immediately. But certainly, the the, the plans in as you go into twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, those have to be off the table. All right, but Mick Barry, anti-austerity, uh, profit people before profit, Cocknall Centre, we game was in here when Brian Hayes was on, and like he said. The unions must now battle, you know, to prevent a drop in wage rates and, and unemployment and so on. But isn't unionization in this country essentially now the public sector rather than the private sector? That's absolutely There's true. There's no union in Newstock. It, no, it, it, the private sector unions are very, very small now. I mean, they are primarily... So a, they a can't beat the, the mm. system if the economics drive wages down or, or lose jobs. That is true. But I think one thing we learned actually from that we knew about this somewhat, but the, the recession showed wages are, don't actually go down that much in the private sector. Okay, What really happened in the private sector over the course of the Says downturn... Says you! No, actually, it says the data, George. <laughs> the no, data says, sorry, no, no. I have to... I, I, no, like, no, I, let I, me finish the point. Right, say whatever okay. I want. No, no. What tends to happen in the private sector, okay, is that when firms take a hit, they tend to lay people off. Okay, people okay? lose jobs, and, yeah. and, and that is... A, and, and the real difference between the public-private sector is that wages did fall in the public sector. We knew that there were severe pay cuts, yeah. but nobody got laid off. Okay, the big form of adjustment, and you may be able to point to examples here or there. Okay, okay, but but you know, typically employers seem to understand this notion or buy this notion that you know people just don't like having wages cut. Okay, and it seems to be almost easier just to sort of you know, to to lay somebody off because you maybe you're you know while the person is very upset you're not looking at them every day, but if you cut somebody's wages. And they're still around. It has all sorts of demotivating okay. effects. So anyway, if, if some of the negative things we're talking about, I'm not convinced it will necessarily reduce uh, result in lower wages. The more likelihood, a greater likelihood is, is, is the unemployment. But let, yeah, but let's not spook ourselves here too much. No. Um, are, are we not, can, are can we just, not a nation of, of glass half full people? Possibly we are. But let me, let me put it like this. I mean, one of the big issues that we keep talking about is, is the fact that, you know, trade with the United Kingdom uh, is likely to And that's absolutely going to be the case. But the real challenge there is then to see, well, can we start exporting to uh, other markets? I mean, there was a sort of an argument for a long time that... It was it was kind of easy for Irish people, you know, to so well not easy is probably put it too strong a way, but it was certainly the the easiest route to uh, exporting was through the UK market. Okay, but again, there's a big world out there, and all things being equal, I mean, if you sort of say, oh, the UK is going to close down, we will lose that export market. Of course, that is a very very bad thing, but you know, what's to say that we can't start looking at other uh, other areas? So, I, I mean, I want to be realistic about this, but I think there is a you know, I think it's important not to spook people entirely. All right, Professor Alan Barrett from the ESRI, thank you for joining me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, Brexit, 
continues to rumble on. Um, we heard earlier on about the the racist and hate attacks now happening increasingly across the UK following that divisive vote. But there are also uh, the law of unintended consequences may also be happening. I'm joined now by Roger Highfield, Director of External Affairs at the Science Museum in London, who joins me on the telephone. Raj, how's Brexit for science? Well, it's caused a, a complete consternation, dismay, depression. And it, it's caused it because science is a kind of cooperative endeavor. And any scientist you talk to is working often very closely with colleagues who are abroad. But it also happens that um, British science has really got an enormous amount of funding, billions of euros of funding from Europe. And in fact, uh, this morning, I was at a thing called a parliamentary links day um, with a selection of MPs and science heavyweights. And they said that something like a fifth of EU funding that goes back to Britain goes into research. So the scientists are appalled, really, that, they, that, that they've got to remake all these relationships and defend science at a time when it was doing so well in the UK. When you say defend it, you mean to find funding somewhere else. I mean, it's pretty hard to find somewhere else if you take Europe out of the equation. Well, I think what they would argue is that um, that they know that they're a much sought-after partner for a lot of um, European projects, not not necessarily EU projects, and they would hope that this would provide. Um, you know, all sorts of opportunities for future collaborations. And the critical thing is, according to uh, Nicola Blackwood, uh, an MP who's also um, the chair of uh, the the House of Commons Science and Technology uh, Select Committee, is to actually really remind everyone that scientific research is, lays the foundation for the future economy. And so we've got to make sure that in all the discussions about how we're going to deal with the Brexit crisis, we don't forget the fact that uh, we have to keep the research base going for the long-term prosperity of the country. Yeah, but it, it, my earlier phrase about the law of unintended consequences, nobody was actually saying in the build-up to this vote you know, we might lose funding for science, which would be very important to us. There are probably a ton of other things that in the coming weeks and months, the UK is suddenly going to discover, oh, shoot, we've lost out here. Well, actually, the the scientists, they they signed letters to national newspapers. Uh Uh, They lobbied hard. And I think what's hurt them perhaps most of all is that they felt that, that the case for Remain was overwhelmingly rational. And so today at this links day, we had Imran Khan, uh, who heads the British Science Association, saying that you can only conclude from this that science just isn't really a big deal for most people. And I think it's sort of shocked them that that it's so low on the agenda, that, that despite wheeling out, you know, shed loads of Nobel Prize winners and Fields medalists saying it would be mad to leave... Europe, we've gone ahead and done it. But I have to tell you, um, as you know, the lovely Ingrid is a distinguished academic and scientist, and she's involved in a project in the teaching of science to primary school 
pupils because science is badly taught um, yeah. to, to primary schools. And if the kid isn't excited by science at 10, 11, 12, probably not going to be excited at any other part of his life. So therefore, science, sad as it may be, it is always had. I mean, it's okay when you put a man on the moon or, you know, Dolly the pig or Dolly whatever, the sheep, Dolly the sheep is cloned. That's on the front page of the mirror. So that's okay. But a ton of scientific endeavor which saves people's lives or makes our lives better largely does come under the radar. I, I, I think you're right, although, you know, I can tell you that in terms of the, the museums that I yeah. work for, we have 600,000 ch- children coming through in school groups every year, and we think, um, you know, there, there is a trend that in terms of engaging young people with science. Um, you know, it's very encouraging, and I suppose that's one of the other dimensions of the Brexit vote that is mortifying, which is that it's actually precisely those young people um, who were trying to inspire, who actually wanted to remain in Europe um, as well. You know, younger people were incredibly positive uh, about remain. So uh, there's a sense that they've been let down, in that, you know, very badly there as well. But one of the things about science and research generally at, at academic institutions, the Americans are a really good example of this, where um, they're very commercial in terms of raising money for the funding or they get money to build a new science block or whatever it happens to be. And Britain and Ireland were quite slow out of the blocks in those things. And then suddenly over the last, you know, 20 or 25 years, they've got really good at it. And and suddenly we've seen an awful lot of money flow into research. And Europe has been crucial to that because, uh, as you rightly point out, you can have people working on the same thing in half a dozen different European countries. That's right. And, and I think... Um, for example, the Wellcome Trust, which is a huge charity that puts you know, a lot of money into biomedical research, uh, they've said that the, the difficulty with the Brexit vote is that it raises, the, it puts this huge question mark over the future of British science and research. And although um, if you talk to Joe Johnson, the science minister, he's, he's optimistic that we're going to get through this thing, as is, is Nicola Blackwood, there's no doubt that in the short term, it's going to have a real chilling effect on um, particularly overseas companies wanting to invest in UK research because we haven't got a clear picture of where everything's heading. Well, at the you moment. see, it's OK saying yeah, it might be only short term, but in the longer term, things will work out. But but the number of, of putting a crudely sort of deals or investments or decisions that might well be made in the next year or two while this all is sort of uh, sorting itself out could have monster ramifications for decades to come. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and there are lots of very thorny issues. So, for example, uh, you know, immigration is clearly central to the uh, Brexit debate, but equally um, scientific research absolutely thrives on the best minds moving easily around the planet. So, um, again, at, at the meeting today, there was a call for thinking creatively about a 21st century policy on migration um, that, that, that can take, in, take this sort of thing into account.
Yeah, I mean, particularly in relation to science, you know, you think of all the the great Jewish scientists that came out of Europe to escape the Nazis and so yeah. on, or even at the end of the war, um, the the whole uh, space race was actually developed by by German rocket engineers, either working for the Russians or working for the Americans. And I mean, <laughs> Werner, no, but That's isn't right. it Werner von no, Braun? No, you're right. You're Werner right. von Braun. Was was really the V one V two expert in World War Two, and then suddenly he's working for the Americans. So the cost and ramifications of this are going to be heard for a while. Meanwhile, Roger, you do your best at the Science Museum in London with all those young school children and get them excited about science. We'll keep on. We'll keep going. Hundreds of thousands. In fact, we just announced a new project. We're going to double the number of school children coming for free to our interactive gallery. So we're we're on it, George. Don't worry.